Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Ontario government seems to be backing away from their demand for the federal government to lift retaliatory tariffs. Also, Hamilton's Chief of Police, Eric Gert, joined us in studio for the Chief's Town Hall, where we looked at marijuana issues, shootings, the budget, and answered your questions. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government seems to be, uh, in some people's minds anyway, giving mixed messages here about what they want to do with the tariff situation. Uh, there was one report earlier yesterday that suggested that uh, the Ontario government uh, was uh, telling or asking the Prime Minister to drop the the Canadian tariffs that have been imposed. Of course, that was in response to the steel and aluminum tariffs that Donald Trump had been imposed on that. And now uh, it seems as if they've modified that request just a little bit, trying to get some clarity on this. And uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Donna Skelly, who's the MPP for Flamborough Glanbrook, and also the parliamentary assistant to the Ministry of Economic Development. Donna, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Some people are suggesting that uh, that the government's walking back on this. Uh, maybe you could clarify exactly what it is that, uh, that your minister's looking for here. Well, yesterday we made an announcement uh, that jointly with the province of Quebec, we are asking the government to get back to the table and to negotiate the removal of these tariffs. The retaliatory tariffs that were put in place are hurting Canada's steel and aluminum industry, as are the tariffs that were imposed by the U.S. government back uh, June 1st of last year. We have to have these, these tariffs removed. They've gone on far too long. Uh, it's unfortunate that it wasn't part of the removal, wasn't part of the, the deal with the USMCA, but uh, it wasn't. And now we're simply saying, whatever it takes, get back to the table and get something done. Well, it takes two to tango, though, doesn't it? Yes. I, I'm not getting any impression from the stories I've seen anyway that the U.S. government is in any hurry to do anything about it. Well, I wouldn't suggest that. I would say that I know that our own um, Premier and the Minister uh, Todd Smith, of Minister of Economic uh, Development, Job Creation and Trade, have both been speaking to our counterparts south of the border. And there is as much interest in having this situation resolved here as it is as there. We all recognize that uh, the steel industry, the aluminum industry, the entire sector is hurting because of these these very costly tariffs that were imposed, you know, over six months ago. To put it into perspective how much it's costing um, our own companies uh, in Canada, Algoma Steel is paying a million dollars a day in tariffs. Stelco, I believe, was close to $40 million in their third quarter of last year, and, and ArcelorMittal is, is north of, of a million every day. So this is, this is a very costly imposition that... Uh, was imposed, and then, of course, the retaliatory measure by our own federal government back in, in June of last year. No one is winning in this in this scenario. Our products are going to have to um, rise to cover the cost of these tariffs. If consumers have to pay more, they'll think twice about buying a product, and if they think twice about buying a product, you're going to start to see more layoffs. We've already seen uh, companies in the Sioux, Tenaris, just laid off uh, over 200 people in Sault Ste. Marie. They can't, uh, they said they just can't sustain these tariffs. I traveled across Ontario back in September, October, and November, and we met with people in the Sioux. We met with people right across Ontario who were involved and impacted, uh, who were involved in the steel sector and impacted by these tariffs. And they were saying back then that they could probably manage maybe another 60, 90 days, but if it 
if it carried on into January and February, they would be in very, very, um, they'd be in, in, in a, in a bad spot. And, you know, to the point where they may even have to shut down. That is not what we want to see happen. I don't think that was ever the intent of the federal government. But if it is the result of these continuing tariffs on both sides of the border, I think that the government has to do something about it. They've got to get back to the table and somehow negotiate an end to these to these taxes. Okay, now you say that your minister, uh, Mr. Smith, has, has had some discussions uh, with some folks south of the border. Are you getting any impression at all, Donna, that, uh, that they're willing to do this too? Because, I mean, if we drop ours and they don't drop theirs, we're in an even bigger hole. Uh, actually, yes. I think that they are really, uh, at least the stakeholders that both uh, the minister and the premier have been meeting with, said that this is it's not helping the industry at all. It's not helping the industry in Ontario. It's not helping the industry in Quebec, and it's not helping the industry anywhere in the U.S. Um, it, it, they're, they're really hurting uh, right across all sectors. We have 16,000 people in Ontario who work in, in the steel industry, over 175,000 in steel and aluminum right across the country, and they're saying it's hurting, and their counterparts are telling them the same thing, and that's one of the reasons why the Premier has been insistent in keeping the phone lines open. He has been calling relentlessly, uh, not only the governors uh, across the U.S., but also uh, stakeholders and saying you've got to apply more pressure to the U.S. government. You said that the um, president may be in a little bit more of a conciliatory tone. Let's hope he applies that to this uh, this onerous mess that has been created with tariffs. Well, and therein lies the problem. Uh, you know, the, you're absolutely right. A lot of people thought that when the trade deal was being negotiated that this was going to be part of that, and it's not. Uh, for whatever reason. I can't believe that that wasn't on the table, but obviously they couldn't come to an agreement on that. But I'm hearing, and I'm sure you are too, Donna, from uh, from my sources down in the States, that even the Democratic-led Congress right now is not in any hurry to lift the tariffs. I mean, that's, protectionism seems to be the new way of economics these days. But when you have to understand that with trade, we, we um, see $2 billion worth of trade crosses between Ontario and, and the United States every day. And one product can cross back and forth is up, up to seven times before it is actually a finished product in this industry. So it may sound like it's protectionist, but we're so connected that you can't think in those terms. And the, uh, that may be the message that, that they're sending at, at the top level, but I think the stakeholders recognize that there is too much at stake First of all, the price of steel is also starting to, you know, on, on a downward spiral. And when it was higher in the summer, they were able to manage these, these million-dollar-a-day tariffs. But as the price, <coughs> excuse me, as the price of steel uh, declines, uh, you know, it makes it harder and harder for companies to, to bear this, this additional tax. So it may appear as if this protectionist um, tone is is really what the um, the U.S. wants, but their stakeholders are saying it doesn't work. It can't work. But why aren't they? Why aren't those stakeholders talking to the U.S. representatives? Why aren't they talking to the White House? I believe there may be some pressure behind the scenes, and at least that's what we're asking them to do in the negotiations or in the discussions that we've had. They've been very forthcoming, saying that they can't bear this as well. That they recognize how integrated the trade is between Canada and the U.S., and that they are they too want to see the removal of these tariffs. 
It really is not. A, it, no, there are no winners in this right now. No, I, and I don't and think it, I don't think anybody's yeah. jumping up and down and saying, "Hey, you know, we've got the upper hand here." Everybody seems to be hurt by this, but the problem is, is it was the guy in the White House that started this whole thing. He doesn't yeah. seem to be any mood to do anything about it. And and you know, I mean, Christia Freeland, the, the international trade minister, who was quoted last week, simply said, "Look, as soon as they drop theirs, we'll drop ours ten seconds later." So I mean, that well, there there has been discussion, but the, yeah, but the reverse of that is also true. If, if we drop ours, as as your, the premier is suggesting, we do say, okay, we're not going to play this game anymore. Then, and, and if they keep theirs in place, who wins? When, that's only just that's going to be even more onerous. Well, there are no winners right now. Somebody has to do something. The status quo can't continue. It no, it's a stare down. Continue. It's a stare down. But I mean, the, the 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 onus here has to be on the on the U.S. administration to do something about this. I mean, these tariffs and any economist, most economists anyway, will tell you that tariffs are a terrible way to do business. The problem is, is only about four economists in the states that believe that tariffs are great, and they all work for Trump. And I, I think, though, if you if you're you're playing the game and you're not at Washington trying to negotiate an end to it, it's not helping. But just simply saying, I'm not going to uh, until you do, is not helping anyone. Our companies, I, I don't want to see more layoffs. I don't think anyone wants to see that. And it is going to hit our economy. Hamilton, uh, you know, was built on the steel industry. We cannot afford to have tariffs continue for another year. So I think that the federal government must get back to the table and do what it has to do to end this standoff, but the status quo simply cannot continue. It's not helping anyone. And, you know, we're talking about large companies, but there are many, many, many smaller companies that are already feeling the pressure. There was an aid package that was introduced. Uh, They're not seeing the money flow. It is almost impossible to access these funds, so they can't get the money. Uh, No, that's not, that's not, Donna, that's not totally true. Algoma got a big chunk of money, and so did Larson Little to FASCO. I'm, I'm talking about the smaller companies who shared with me specifically. They cannot seem to access this money. It's very, very, very difficult to ask, access any of the money in the billion-dollar aid package. And as time goes on, they're carrying, um, you know, they have to, to face the, these additional taxes every single day, and, and they're really finding it difficult to get any sort of relief uh, and the min- in, in the meantime, the federal government is sitting there with all of the money that they've collected through these tariffs. It can't continue, Bill. It it may be going back to to the U.S. and sitting down and saying, "Look, we you know we have to do what is it going to take to get these removed?" But they're not going to end the standoff if they simply say, "You start, you go first. It's not working. Get back to Washington and make it happen." And it's not just Ontario that's saying it. Quebec is now on board. They're feeling the pressure because of the aluminum industry. They want an end to the tariffs as well. Yeah, but the, the, the ministers from Quebec that I saw anyway, they're suggesting, look, he wants this whole thing resolved. In other words, all the tariffs taken off. And there's There's got to be some discussion going on, and we're told that there are discussions going on uh, between the federal government and the U.S. government about this. The problem is at this stage, as you know, Donna, is you don't know who you're talking to right now. Uh, I, I know that the Quebec Minister of Economic Development was suggesting that maybe the Congress can do this. They didn't impose these tariffs. I'm not so sure that they can relieve them. Well, we there are other players. There is. Uh, I know that the Premier is heading to Washington on the 21st of this month, and he's going to be meeting um, with representatives from the National Governors Association. So they'll be discussing it, and hopefully they can put more pressure on, on the federal government. Whatever it takes. We have to do it. They can't continue. It is, 
It's simply not sustainable. We get that. We get that. But Economics 101 also says when somebody imposes something on you, you have to retaliate. Well, you have to retaliate, but who's winning here, Bill? I mean, really, what, what are we going to play this game until we see uh, layoffs at uh, uh, DeFasco, layoffs at Stelco? No, we're we seeing, yeah, but see we're that. seeing, we're, I understand that, but what I'm suggesting is, is, you know, what the Premier is wanting to do here is, is really just say, Canada, you move first with no guarantee that there's going to be any relief for us if we do. That's right. But the status quo, as I've said, isn't working. It really isn't working. And somebody has got to to make a move. No one is winning in this in this standoff right now. So are we going to continue with this because we have uh, two egos at play? I'd say there's too much at stake. Somebody has got to I don't think it's uh, ego. Offer, offer an olive branch. Well, you've got to get back to Washington and, and say let's 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 hammer it out. We've got to remove these these um, these tariffs. As you said off the at the beginning, I don't think anybody realized that when we were negotiating the new NAFTA, the USMCA, that we would end up with an agreement with these tariffs still in place. Here we are now, months later, they're still in place. People are paying millions of dollars a day in these additional taxes, and there doesn't seem to be any movement on either side. So what are you, what are you suggesting? I, I mean, I'm, in, in a perfect world. Has, in a perfect world, I think that we need to have somebody from the federal government. It doesn't necessarily have to be the PM, but... Um, uh, somebody has got to head to Washington and uh, sit down and say, we're willing to remove these tariffs. And, you know, will you do it? We've got to go cap in hand and say, let's do it. Because what the status quo isn't working. Get back to Washington. Get some negotiations going. If, if it's Christia Freeland, get there and, and get us a better deal. Get them off the table because we can't last another six months. Donna, thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Anytime. Donna Skelly, of course, uh, who is the uh, uh, parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Economic Development. Uh, all, all well and good, and, and I understand. Look, at everybody's frustrated by this. You talk to folks in the steel industry, and they're frustrated by this, too. But in, in international trade like this, uh, it's, I don't think it's the best strategy to say, okay, I'm going to blink first, because there's absolutely no indication from U.S. authorities right now that Trump has any idea that he wants to relieve these tariffs on steel and aluminum anyway. And they are having a negative impact on businesses here. We get that. But they're also having a negative impact down there. The pressure's got to come from south of the border on the president to get rid of these things. I mean, this was this was done, you, you talk about ego, this was just done on a whim, remember, a few months ago to impose tariffs. The problem we've got here is while we're trying to muddle through with this, it seems that the U.S. trade representatives, the Mr. Lighthizer who negotiated the deal with us, and Wilbur Ross is the Commerce Secretary, uh, seem to have their eye on China, trying to find some sort of a deal there. They're not paying a whole lot of attention to what's going on up here. Dialogue is a great thing. And I know that uh, when we talk to the minister and ministerial, ministerial representatives from the federal government on this side of the border, they say there are ongoing talks about this, but it's not coming from the White House. It's coming from the Congress with Christia Freeland, uh, Minister Baines, and others. So... I don't know. I'd like to see this thing get resolved. But but jumping up and down and just saying, well, okay, we have to get the, you know, we're going to give up first. I I don't trust them, frankly. I just don't trust them to say, okay, fine, we'll we'll, we'll be conciliatory here. We'll let's play fair. 
that doesn't really seem to be the mantra from the White House these days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, time for the Chiefs Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio. Welcome back. Good to see you again. Thanks very much, Bill. Good to be here. A uh, very busy week for uh, police service uh, with a number of ongoing investigations, including another shooting yesterday. And uh, again, there's the concern within the public consciousness right now that, that this is escalating. And uh, we caught in the middle of something here. What, what can you tell us? Well, we do know because we tracked the uh, shootings over the last three years. There was a reduction actually last year down to 25, which mirrored pretty closely 2016. It was 41 in 2017. Uh, so, uh, you know, Obviously, with a, a number of this to date, which is five, um, but there may be, and we can't say this definitively, but we also look for multiple connections. You know, are, are is it the same people doing the same thing? Are they doing it for intimidation? And then they actually, uh, you know, achieve their purpose. Uh, so it's all part of the investigation, but it's always a concern. Uh, certainly down the road, and I've talked about this before, uh, Toronto is facing a very uh, large spike in both the shootings and homicides. We're not in the same yet, and we were... Uh, reduced in both areas last year. Well, homicides were pretty much the average. Um, but I mean, you know, I don't mean to belittle that because of course any victim and the impact that has is horrendous. Um, and then we've got, as you know, uh, outstanding um, homicide investigations related to traditional organized crime. So these are all concerns. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, it's not a big public safety issue. And you know, my commentary is, uh, depending on where these people place the rounds or miss, uh, it's always a public safety concern. But, you know, when it's targeted, I think people go, okay, it's not just uh, arbitrary. It's somebody's, you know, targeted for this. Yeah, but you don't want to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we've exactly. had, sadly, there's been some tragedies uh, here and in Toronto, certainly, Definitely. Uh, where innocent bystanders have been killed. And uh, th- that's the, the play. Exactly. Uh, you know, some of these situations here, you, I, I, there's no way to compartmentalize this and say, well, it's only going to happen over here. I mean, that's right. it happened on any street at any time. I mean, the, the one that I think scared an awful lot of people, I think it was at uh, King Main in Victoria a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Noontime on a Sunday. Yeah. Gunplay. Gun and somebody had a dash cam going, as you know, and you see it. And I guess what's disturbing when you actually see the events is just how um, nonchalant in some ways that people pull out a gun and start shooting. And certainly what we've seen from some of the, the shootings in other jurisdictions, including the states, you know, that's really disturbing. That the, you, you, There's no emotional content. Like there wasn't a fight just prior. Somebody walks up, pulls a gun out and starts shooting. That's that's disturbing. Why is this drug related? Uh, the fact that there seem to be more firearms than, than in the past? Uh, overall, as a commentary, yes. We know that uh, guns, money, and drugs all go together. And we do know that the drug trade, uh, you know, is still, um, you know, profiting by, uh, you know, the harm to others. We know it from most recently the purple heroin that was introduced and its lethality, the opioid crisis. Uh, you've got the illegal dispensaries running. Um, and keeping in mind, you know, people can possess 30 grams uh, now that they've legalized it. Um, and if you have medical license with the proper verification, you can have 150 grams in addition to 30 grams. That's a lot of marijuana. Um, but the point is beyond that, and if you're doing it for profit, then gun, money, drugs. Uh, I want to go to phone calls. And uh, I got a lot of other stuff I want to talk to you about as well, including uh, the the cannabis situation and uh, a budget, your police budget, yep. that we're going to get to. Lots of ground to cover. I want to get back to the to the cannabis situation uh, and the complexity of this. Uh, I, I remember when the legislation was passed last October, you brought a binder in here to yep. show me. And, and I mean, we're talking a thick thing. I mean, it had to be about three or four inches thick. And you yep. figure this stuff is all that you've got to digest and be able to make 
and I mean everybody, not just you, but I'm, yeah, it, it operationalized. This, right. this this has got to be pretty tough. I mean, I, I you knew what was coming. I get that, yep. but just the same, uh, it's it's almost as if you need weigh scales sometimes. You know, right there in the car, and it's it's very very intricate to to enforce this and to actually have an understanding of what's going on. Exactly. I mean, let's just take, um, you know, you can transport uh, four plants because you can personally have four plants in your house, but you can't transport them if they're budding or flowering. So, you know, that's just one aspect, never mind all the other forms it comes in, whether it's liquid, solid, in food, not in food, introduced into a beverage, just a liquid on its own, dried, um, fresh, like it just goes on and on and then combinations thereof. Uh, relative to your, your comment on the legislation, and we were paying attention. In fact, we were looking for the act to be published, um, and it really didn't arrive till about August. I'd been looking for it for a long time. So I could actually read the act, both uh, the Federal Act, the Cannabis Act, and the Provincial Cannabis Act, because there's two of them. And to digest that, no pun intended, and work through it and figure out how you're going to operationalize. Um, and then we have to do training for our people. You know from the dispensaries and our position has been, this is all new legislation. We got to get it right. So we did participate, as you know, with our latest shutdowns, uh, with a provincial-based team. We have um, restrained the property post-seizure, and that's now allowed in the law. But we've also got to follow how that all works. So, for example, we post on the doorways of these places, if you want to seek redress from that as a landlord, then you have to go to a divisional court to do so. It's not a JP. It's not, you know, in that jurisdiction. It's a divisional court judge, which... I think is a good idea because the judge has to understand the implications of, did the landlord know? Is the landlord complicit to it? What's going to be used for again in future? And we had to get that right. So we did it and we're, you know, first in the province to restrain the property on a permanent basis till of course the courts dispose of it either through the process, either provincial court or federal court. And then if there's an appeal from the landlord. So it is complex. You got to get it right. But as I said, you know, we want to make sure that we do it properly because the worst thing we can have is the thing opens the next day and then the public says, well, I thought you had legislation to cover this. So we want to make sure we got it right. We have seized uh, six properties at this point and we'll continue to do so until such time as uh, the resolution appears in court. Now, there there have been some other businesses uh, that were doing the medical marijuana thing and, and yep. they're licensed and that's been in place for quite some time. Uh, somebody asked me this the other day and I mentioned I was going to see you in the show this week, so I'll, I'll throw this right back at you then. Uh, are they allowed to sell recreational? No, uh, because the only uh, authorized distributor currently is online through the provincial government. Okay. You've got the... So in uh, other words, if, if you walk into one of those shops that currently exist for medical marijuana... Yeah, you can't buy for recreational purposes. Unless you've right. got a prescription. Correct, and then it's for medical purposes. Yeah. And that requires all kinds of documentation. And as I've said, you know, um, it will be up to a maximum of 150 grams for a medical user based on their daily need. Uh, so it's that's the maximum, but can be lower than that. But theoretically, a medical user could walk around with 180 grams, which is quite a lot of marijuana. Mm. That's dried, dried marijuana. Yeah. Uh, anyway, a, a lot of questions, and I, I think everybody's just kind of feeling the way around here, mm-hmm. trying to get things going on. So d- now, do you monitor those 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 locations as well that that sell medical marijuana? Uh, the medical marijuana largely falls to Health Canada, both yeah. for inspections. Um, of course, we'll act on complaints. Uh, but right now, with the number of dispensaries that we've had in this jurisdiction, that has been our focus. And as we've said, you know, we've been on the show before. We did city, 62 dispensaries prior to October 17th when it was legalized last year. And the dispositions in court 
you know, about 75 to 80% of them were peace bonds. Well, that really doesn't send a strong message. So we have said publicly, uh, we're looking to how the courts are going to enact penalties that have been increased. And it has to be a deterrent because it can make a lot of money at these illegal dispensaries. And back to, you know, uh, what's the source? Where did they get it from? Does Is it just marijuana? Is there something else mixed in? Uh, we know that that happens on the street where people, you know, mix things, use cutting agents. It's a little different with marijuana. But if you're dealing with liquids and stuff, uh, you don't know what you're getting. And it's not properly regulated by the government. So... You know, you take your chances. What about impaired driving? Have you seen a spike since the legislation has come in? We have seen an increase in the number of our drug impaired driving arrests last year. It went up. I don't have the figures right in front of me, but I believe it was about 16 in the previous year and about 62 in 2018. Some of that is the focus by our members, both on our training that we've done for standard field sobriety tests. That's for the front line. And then our drug recognition experts who actually do the analysis on the person in terms of, um, you know, behavior and physical symptoms and all that. So we have stressed that part. And then our front line has been arresting on that. And you've seen some legislation change dramatically around there. Um, so, yes, it continues. But, again, it's not just marijuana. It's, it's a whole range of drugs, prescription drugs, uh, other illicit drugs, combinations of alcohol and drugs. Um, I've talked about it before. The threat is from the impaired driving. Whatever the particular thing is you've consumed doesn't really matter. If you're uh, not able to operate a vehicle that weighs a ton or more, then you've got some problems. There have been a couple of incidents uh, in, in the last week or two, Chief, uh, of, I guess, traffic stops that have turned into drug seizures. Yep. Uh, maybe start at the beginning there. What? Why the traffic stop in the first place? Is, is, are those done in an arbitrary fashion, or is the officer looking for something? <laughs> never an arbitrary fashion, because as you know, and we have stressed this with our front line, that it never is supported by the courts. We don't support that. Anything from a, a, you know, a street check, as they call them, uh, to a traffic stop, you have to have your grounds and reason okay, why so you're my, stopping my, vehicle in the okay, first place. Okay, so my traffic, my, my turning signal is not working, so you, I get pulled over. Yep. Uh, what can the officer do then? I mean, I did, you know, okay, I address this. Okay, I may, I may even get a ticket for it. But at the same time, are they looking in the car? Are they looking to see what's going on? Yeah, and any, anything in plain view, if I can look uh, through the window yeah. and see it, that's in plain view, then I can act on that. Uh, we've had some uh, training now because there was some things that, you know, uh, the smell of marijuana alone wasn't enough, but now they've changed the legislation a bit there, uh, where if you've got the strong smell of vegetated marijuana, which is a different smell than burnt marijuana, uh, that can lead to grounds, depending on the circumstances, to enter into search of a vehicle. So if you're transporting, you know, in your trunk, all this fresh cut marijuana, then it, we would have grounds to do so, you know, provided you followed the chain of, chain of legality to get to where you are. But yeah, I, I guess you'd kind of be surprised at how blatant some of the people are, where you've either got, you know, powdered substances in immediate view on the console, you've got packaging that indicates uh, drug use, you've got drugs in plain view, including whether it's, uh, you know, methamphetamines or other things. So... Quite frankly, some people just aren't as diligent about um, taking chances, and there it is in plain view when we stop you. So, you know, they're not complex criminals here, and, uh, you know, we'll take advantage of that portion. You know, it's not everything's not like I recall they were both, si- both sizable quantities, too. Exactly. Yeah, well, they're just, I guess they figure they can just transport and drive around at free will, and you can't. <laughs> uh, let me grab one more call here before we have to do a break here. Uh, 905-645-3221, of course, is our number. Uh, Tony, thanks for holding on. Go ahead for the chief. Chief, uh, there was an incident here uh, where a car was stopped and uh, seized, 
But it wasn't the person's car. He, uh, the person that lent him the car thought he was uh, being a good Samaritan, lent the guy the car, and then uh, the uh, the police stopped them and and for drugs and seized the car. How does that work? Does uh, does the good Samaritan? I'll call him a good Samaritan that lent him the car, and he is being punished. Uh, Again, because his vehicle has been uh, seized because somebody conned him into lending him the car to uh, do drugs. Uh, How does that work? So, Tony, just for clarification, are you you alluding to the recent case reported from uh, down in the eastern provinces where the judge had ruled on exactly that? Uh, No. I'm talking about, uh, I believe it was was on the news there just uh, a week or so ago here in in Hamilton that... uh, Somebody lent somebody a car, and uh, and uh, the police stopped him, and he had drugs on it, yeah. so they uh, seized the car, and yep. the 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 owner of the vehicle is left high and dry, yep. and and loses the car, and he ha- still has to make payment on his vehicle. Yeah, so I'll, I'll refer to the case down east because fundamentally the facts are the same. Okay. Uh, in this case, it was a owner of a BMW. He did lend it to somebody. Um, and, of course, seized with uh, quite a substantial amount of drugs. The court ruled uh, one of two ways. He said either, one, you did know about it, and therefore it is proceeds of crime, and we will be seizing it. This is the court ruling, not ours. And secondarily, it was either that or willful blindness. So in that particular case, the judge made that determination. Of course, you have to look at the facts of each case, um, and there is an onus when you lend somebody your car, uh, whether it's for traffic accident or otherwise, that you as the owner incur responsibility there. So as a general premise for giving somebody your car, um, I would be very hesitant, depending on the circumstances of who I give it to and for what purpose, because of all the bad things that can happen to you as the owner, and that's a good example. Um, so there are requirements, and if you know you connect it to, um, in this case, uh, proceeds of crime for drug distribution, the courts will decide the disposition of that vehicle. So the the man that uh, I I know that uh, if you lend somebody a, your vehicle you're insur- uh, you're insuring uh, uh, your insurance will, will hammer it on on that because you gave him permission. Mm-hmm. But I was just wondering uh, if this is if, if this person was actually a blind, uh, yeah. not knowing what was going on. He uh, just I just wanted to just run over to the store and pick something up or something like that, and all of a sudden uh, the car is seized. Uh, is he being penalized further because he's being, you know, uh, it just it just seemed by by like the information that was sent yep. on over the the radio, yep. it just seemed like he was being uh, penalized for being a good Samaritan. Yeah, so I guess without knowing the the facts of the yeah. case, what I'm pointing out is the risk when you do that. And then the courts will decide, not us, we would seize the property, but the courts will decide on the basis of information that's uh, before the courts, whether it was in fact, uh, you know, harmless or uh, there was a level of complicity either from the person lending the car or willful blindness. But the courts turn their minds to that. Thanks so much for the call, Tony. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gerd is with us here in studio. And quick uh, email on this one uh, uh, from Nick says, as an automotive service technician, there have been many times that I have gone on a road test with a customer's vehicle without the customer there. Of course, they always go around the block to make sure everything's right. I get that. Uh, he says, oftentimes there's a strong odor of marijuana present inside the vehicle. What implications can occur to me if the vehicle is stopped for a traffic check? 
Well, we covered that earlier in terms of how the law has changed. Uh, they did have rulings about burnt marijuana was not grounds enough for search, but now they've changed it to have the strong smell of vegetative marijuana, which if you smell both, you know they're fundamentally different. It does give you grounds. So um, that's a decision you'll have to make as the automotive technician, whether you're going to take it out in the road or not, or have that discussion with the uh, the client um, or customer. Uh, but yeah, there's anytime you, you know, and you got in and you knew it and, um, you know, then you're potentially getting into a dispute about, uh, the customer saying, well, that was never there when I gave him the car and he must've done, you know, it can just lead to trouble. So, uh, better, better judgment, I guess, maybe the way to look at this. Uh, let me make a quick right turn here because I want to start talking about the budget because yep. that was right at the top of my list and we kind of got sidetracked with the cannabis stuff, which I, I, I get because a lot of people still haven't made any questions about this. Uh, but uh, the budget uh, went through the police service board already. Council is going to have a look at it. There'll be some questions asked like this. Uh, maybe a quick overview as to what it's going to look like this year. Yeah, so we really look at a number of things. I'll just go over the topic headings that we provided on. Um, under the Police Service Act, we're required to provide adequate and effective service. The board oversees that. And there's kind of five areas that are in law. Crime prevention, which is no surprise, um, but it's an important aspect. Law enforcement, uh, assistance to victims of crime. Public order maintenance, which you could think about Lock Street or other, um, you know, whether it's a, a protest or demonstration, and provided it's uh, legal and orderly, and then there's no problems. An emergency response. Um, really, the five areas that we focused on in terms of presenting both to the board, and I have been to a General Issues Committee at Council already. Uh, adequate and effective service, quality of life issues, because this is the growing area uh, within policing where it's not criminal in nature, but of course, we have to address it, you know. Uh, whether it's mental health or whether it is um, harm reduction as a general premise, um, quality of life issues, how are people getting along with their neighbors, you know, it hasn't reached the point of criminality, but there may be a dispute. Uh, so we intercede in a lot of those things. It is kind of a, a large part of our business these days. Um, harm reduction is a general premise, and we're connected to many of the committees doing the work. And um, particularly with the opioid crisis, uh, that's one of the areas, but also mental health and the connections to other things. Uh, case law and new law, uh, obviously Cannabis Act is one of those big ones, but there have been Supreme, Supreme Court decisions that affect how we do business that increase our uh, demands. And lastly, our workload. Uh, so one of the reasons I, I had asked for 24 people um, for frontline positions, and then I've asked for uh, two special constables for POA court, Provincial Offenses Act court, newly created, um, the old uh, main court building across from John Sapinka, and lastly, a sexual assault um, detective constable as a result of our sexual assault community review team. And there was a motion uh, by Councillor Jackson to look at an additional person next year uh, because of the caseload. So in, in that same <coughs> department? In the same department. Uh, because the committee had recommended, they didn't concretize it, but it was two or possibly three. And so I think the board responded to that feedback from the community. And uh, in terms of the workload, in the last four years, we have seen an increase of over 40,000 hours of time on reactive calls. So if you do the math, basically on 2,080 hours or 2,088 hours per person work that they deliver in a year, uh, it equates to over 20 people right there. So just straight workload. Um, our leading calls for service are domestic violence by time, domestic violence, disturbances, and motor vehicle collisions. But kind of the disturbing trend uh, in 2018, because those are 2017 stats, 2018 was the increase in the number of uh, calls that we respond to 
uh, not for completed suicides, but for suicide calls. And that's obviously largely our mobile crisis rapid response team that goes out to those calls, but a frontline can as well. So, I mean, you've got the destigmatization around mental health and people asking for help. That's good. But it has led to an increase in calls for service. So, really what I did uh, in terms of the approach to the board, and they did vote unanimously in favor, uh, was look at that workload and its effect. I didn't even look at kind of accommodation issues within our service. We did present to the board in that last November, but I didn't roll that into the computation. It, we came in at 2.9% as an increase. Um, so we believe that was a responsible budget. It has them in the GIC, the General Issues Committee, with the councillors, and they had an opportunity to ask me all the questions. And we're waiting for the total levy to be passed, as you know, Bill, uh, probably around March uh, mm-hmm. when they look at the total levy for the city. But um, really how it works is had GIC had huge opposition, they had the choice to push it back to the board and say, uh, have another look at this. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm quite happy um, in terms of the metrics that we provided, the rationale, and I believe it will have an impact on their front line and their ability to deliver service. Let's, I want to talk about the uh, that personnel issue and uh, and about staffing and, and you know, how the resources are actually used. <coughs> we have, as you know, Chief, uh, for instance, with uh, advanced care paramedics and, and ambulances, what they call a code zero. Yep. In other words, where everybody is deployed, everybody is busy, and there's technically there's nobody to answer a call. Uh, how thinly spread can can your staff be at any given time, given the fact that an awful lot of these calls you've just described here take a lot of time? Uh, the, the yeah. Domestic violence, p- possible suicide, etc. Uh, you can't just say, okay, I'll leave here now and i got to go someplace else. Uh, you know, I, I know that there are busier times than, than others sometimes, but the fact of the matter is there's only so many people on any given shift. And uh, do you ever get to that point where you think we're just we're stretched to the limit here? Yeah, and actually we did introduce a priority zero call, much like EMS did a few years back. And the premise there, of if it is life-threatening immediately, uh, we will pull off other calls to go and do that work. We've reached some times where we don't have people available for priority zero call because they're already involved in all those other calls. And that whole workload analysis is quite complex. <coughs> and of course, you know, it's uh, a... <laughs> I kind of equate it to when I used to work in traffic and I'd be at the desk all day handling multiple requests and then come four o'clock when the bosses walk through, you've got a calm and then think, oh, geez, I guess they don't do anything here. (laughs) So there's a bit of that. (coughs) Now that I'm, you know, in a boss, I I try to remember these things. Timing is everything. Uh, But again, you know, you can have a Tuesday night that's going crazy, a Saturday night that isn't. Uh, It really depends on the circumstances and the calls for service. But you know, it was a gross analysis, and you just talked about it. You know, domestic violence call uh, is time-consuming because you have to look not only the substantive disclosure that day, um, how you approach the victim and get disclosure. You've got historical uh, potentials for either assaults or sexual assaults. You've got uh, children that are impacted and require follow-up. You've got to get the evidence properly, and then you may be required to do seizure of digital evidence. So it's not just a matter of, you know, like when I first started, you could handle the call in an hour or two. It's not that way anymore. And, you know, the, the community has demanded of us fuller, complete service, so we deliver that. Uh, but the balance is, like you said, you've got a priority zero call, baby not breathing, for example. Um, we will be going to that. I know EMS is going too. Uh, but we will. So it's these competing demands. So the reason we do the workload analysis and look at available time is look at what can we do on a regular basis. And we're getting to a point, quite frankly, you know, 48,000 hours call of time in the last four years, 
that's all work that has to be done on a reactive basis. And I, you know, it was 22.86 officers are divided by 2,088 hours. That's a lot of work and a lot of people. So. Well, and, and on that statistic, I mean, yes. there, there is a ratio. There is a, a, a barometer, is there not, of, of officers per population mm-hmm. in a community? And, a, and, and yeah. Hamilton falls below the, that, that average. Yeah, we fall below the national average. Uh, I got asked that question. I'm just pulling it up here in my stats here. So it's called the cop to pop ratio. It's so number of officers per 100,000. Uh, so we're currently at 148.2. The... Um, the national, that's 6% below the national average. With the increases, we come up to about 152 officers. Uh, the median is 157. But what I would add to that is, without you know disparaging any of my, um, my uh, other jurisdictions and my peers, um, this is a busy jurisdiction. You know, we're a, a working town. We always have been, deep labor, labor town basis. And we're seeing a shift in terms of demographics and businesses. It's largely the social service sector now that is the main employer. But nonetheless, uh, you know, uh, we're a large urban city, not quite as large as Toronto, but um, a destination uh, for many people, uh, whether it's for work or immigration, all those things. And, you know, we look in that positively for the diversity. But it's a work in town that has a lot of um, calls for service. Speaking of which, uh, there's always been a concern every year in budget time. We have a discussion about whether or not there should be another police station built, another actually bricks and mortar. Yep. Uh, where is that discussion right now? Yeah, so one of the things, I, again, I answered to the General Issues Committee is they said, well, you put this in. That's because uh, City Council requested that we do a 10-year projection about four years ago, so we did that. And one of the things uh, contemplated by then Chief uh, DeCare was, you know, Station 40, which and we're not quite sure where it would land. You know, you got to look at population. You got to look at calls for service, uh, distribution. Obviously, our two main growth areas are Alfreda, which is right on the city books in terms of a main growth area, which is, for those who don't know, kind of the intersection of Highway 20 and Highway 20 or 53 and 20, whichever you want to call it, and <clears throat> in that area. And then Waterdown, which has been a huge growth area. So... I don't know that it will be one station. I don't know it could be handled potentially by substations. And then the question was, do you actually need bricks and mortar? And, you know, when you're traveling from Highway 53 out to the Gore Road or that area, which basically you can see the 401 from our uh, northern extension of Flamborough, that's a lot of time. So we may have to have a substation out that way. But quite frankly, that work remains to be done. We do do workload analysis every five years. We will continue to do that work. And quite frankly, I'd be gone by that point, I would think. And it'll be for, you know, one of my successors in the position to do that. But we want to be alive to the issue. And certainly we're hearing from the counselors in both those areas, being Brenda Johnson and Judy Partridge, in terms of the impact on those communities. And Rob Basuda before well, that. It, but geography must play a factor. Because I, yes. I, I, when I talk to the uh, to the ambulance uh, drivers, I mean, they certainly do. I mean, this yes. is a big area, as it you is. said. Uh, Central Station, the police station, of course, up on uh, Rymel Road. Yep. Uh, those officers are deployed from there, and they're they're responsible for that, as you mentioned, Flamborough. Correct. Uh, all the way up to Sheffield. Correct. Which is on the border of, of Cambridge. That's right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit of a hike. It's a big hike, and you know, uh, at least I had the advantage of working out, you know, it used to be called Dundas Station, which was a substation in Dundas. Yeah. And so I kind of know the geography. When we got <laughs> new officers out to the area, I'd take them and drive them around the perimeter, and they'd go... Holy smokes, I had no idea. And I think for the average Hamiltonian who hasn't kind of driven the geographic uh, perimeter, 
Um, till you do, you say, wow, I didn't realize they had all this area. So, you know, your response times factor into that. Um, whether it's a B and E out in that area or a collision, uh, there's, there's time to get out there. So you're quite right. So I think probably, but I don't know that it's just going to be, you know, a huge station. It may have to be a couple of substations and we're live to the issue both around what's the best way to do it financially responsibly, but we're also going to have to look at staffing too. Uh, email bkelly900chml.com from uh, Gary says, uh, what are your resources vis-a-vis cold cases? And actually, I was just talking to Jackie Penman, who's here with me today. We're looking at uh, best practices. We have a couple of students that we've got from Mohawk, and they're doing a, a really a literature review with all the other services for what goes online. And we're trying to coordinate with our detective sergeants to do that. We do have cold cases on our site already, but we're looking at to make it a little more robust and you've always got to consider the evidentiary requirements uh, from, you know, what do you disclose or not. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, anytime we get information in those cold cases, they are never closed. We have had some success in cold cases. And, uh, you know, where you get that one piece of information that makes it all come together or a couple pieces, um, we are interested in solving those kinds, particularly with homicides. What's what's the protocol there? I mean, you know, you mentioned that they're never closed until there's there's some resolution to it. Correct. Is is there a time frame? We uh, we should check on these every six months, every six years, or whatever. Yeah, often what we do in terms of our staffing within the branch, depending on their uh, current caseload, and you can see, for example, Detective Sergeant Tom is working a number number of homicide investigations related to traditional organized crime. Uh, he's got a pretty full plate. Um, I suspect, you know, it's not just original investigation, it's disclosure, it's the court process, it's all the other things that our detectives have to do. But uh, we will assign a, a new detective quite often to go over the file, as we call it, and with a new set of eyes to what is in the box. I know it's not a literal box, but um, the idea is, you know, you don't come with firm conclusions. You remain open and in terms of what might have happened. And we'll follow up. We followed up an investigation relative to a homicide out at McMaster um, in the late 70s. And, uh, you know, by that point in time, you know, if you can get some disclosure from one of the suspects or persons of interest, uh, we will follow up on that and have done that work. The new technology and the new methodology that can be developed, and let's face it, uh, you, uh, even a cold case that may be 10, 12 years old, uh, can you look at it through that different lens now and, and use that same evidence and say, okay, now we've got this technology that we can apply to this? Yeah, and it's one of the reasons. I mean, when we're looking at the investigative services building, we're touring with the counselors. I said, well, here's our here's our retention of some of our exhibits, you know, from the 1980s and 1990s. They said, pardon? No, no, if it's a sexual assault or it's homicide, we keep that evidence forever. And we have to have a place to store that. But to your point, where you get the technology, whether it's DNA or some new technology I've never even thought of yet, if you still have physical evidence that's properly preserved, it gives you that opportunity. We have done that with DNA evidence, both to clear people, uh, but also to convict people. Um, so we're open to the mi- uh, open-minded to say, all right, we'll do a DNA analysis. And if the person of interest or the suspect is not confirmed, then they're eliminated as a suspect or a person of interest. Uh, very quickly, uh, we had a discussion just before you joined us uh, about traffic calming, traffic safety, reducing speed limits, uh, and those are going to be city council decisions to do that, but uh, it, then it gets dumped onto your plate uh, for enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about resources for things like that? If if they are going to move, <coughs> excuse me, they talk about maybe even you know, reducing the uh, fallback speed limit here to 40 kilometers right across the city, and especially on residential streets. 
there's got to be an enforcement aspect to that, which is going to put an awful lot of pressure, I would think, on police service. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, when I came into this position, um, I still stress that traffic safety is important. It's an aspect of what we do. What we needed in totality was skills development for all the facets of policing that we have to do, everything from drug enforcement to domestic violence to sexual assaults, and it goes on and on. But we do know that one of the leading issues, and certainly indicated by this show in the interest in traffic safety, it remains one of the primary concerns for the public. Uh, so our officers do, in fact, enforce, and they've continued to do that in January. I've been quite pleased with, uh, particularly with the weather and the snow. Uh, they're continuing to do that enforcement. Um, I'd like to think that, uh, you know, some of the additional officers will ease some pressure for proactive time. And amongst that proactive time is going out and do that enforcement. Just to give you know, a frame of reference for your listeners, you know, when you look at Division 2, for example, and I believe one of our beat crime managers once cr- uh, counted all the stop sign controlled intersections, and it was over 2,000. So, you know, when it's your stop sign in your neighborhood, uh, we understand it's a priority, but, you know, to cover 2,000 is almost impossible. But we try and prioritize by collision locations. We try and prioritize by the complaints in the area. And we continue to do that enforcement. We would, uh, obviously, you know, from my perspective, I'd love to have uh, a traffic branch again. That that's what they primarily do, but that's a cost. And back in the 1990s, when Chief Madaw came in, uh, it was restructured and downsized. Uh, but doesn't mean that we don't have potential to have traffic enforcement officers dedicated. The reason I say that is, and having ridden motorcycle myself. When you see a person on a motorcycle with the brakes on, you go, oh, it's traffic enforcement. You know they're a cop, but you go, traffic enforcement. Or the car drives by and it says traffic, you know they're looking for that. And that has a deterrent effect as well as an enforcement effect. So we continue to work with the city on this, uh, whether it's an engineering application, but we do know enforcement is the way to go. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, thanks so much to everybody who uh, jumped in on this, and thank you, Chief, for uh, popping by. We'll do this again in a few weeks. And thank you, Bill. In spite of your cold, I thought you did exceptionally. <laughs> I'm hanging in. I'm hanging in. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.